The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. I'm back, and this is episode 189 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Oh my goodness, I uh, I hope you uh, you didn't miss me too much last week. I took a week away to, uh, you know, I just had a lot on my plate. I had a lot to prepare for. I was uh, getting ready for an upcoming panel at the Comic-Con, and just so much going on that I could not do a proper edit on uh, my shows, and I wanted to make sure that that was ready. But uh, we are back this week like I said, with episode 189, our guest is Lisa Reagan, and uh, we are having a wonderful chat. Uh, Lisa was a delight to talk to. We are, we're going to be discussing uh, writing to a deadline, the secrets behind writing a series, because she has a highly successful, uh, so far, 12-book series in the uh, Detective Josie Quinn series. Now, this is actually her second series that she's got out there and uh but uh, josie quinn is doing so so good and uh we will hear about the uh, 12th book that just came out uh this month and uh but then we're going to be hearing a reading from book one so that way you get to go all the way back to the beginning which was only three short years ago in 2018 when this book came out and uh, that still just blows my mind that she's got 12 books already this quick but when you love writing in a series like uh, like Lisa does, uh, the work is just, uh, it's not like work anymore. It's like uh, having a chat with an old friend. And uh, we're going to be hearing about that as well. And uh, we are also deal- talking about dealing with rejection. And uh, what does your protagonist need? This and so many other things. It's a fantastic chat. And uh, you're going to get some great insight into Lisa and her process and her her crime thrillers that she enjoys writing. And all of that's coming up here in just a few moments, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, like I said, I had taken the week off. I was preparing for my panel with, uh, I had an interview with Spencer Wilding, actor, uh, creature performer, Spencer Wilding, and uh, uh, new Darth Vader, Spencer Wilding. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, so I had spent uh, Monday and Tuesday and was going into Wednesday last week preparing for that, making notes, and studying up so that way I could do a, a good job uh, up on stage talking to him. And then I got the news that, unfortunately, he was unable to catch a flight out of out of Wales uh, due to the pandemic, the Delta variant flaring back up again. Uh, he just, uh, flying here from Europe was just not possible. So he had to cancel and uh gosh man i went i went like a whole day there thinking man what am i doing i'm not i don't don't have anything else left right now uh there have been talk about me filling in somewhere or doing some more but none of that came to pass but uh, fortunately the next day i did get a call back joey mills over at pop goes the culture network uh part of the network that we're part of the family of uh he got a hold of me and let me know that he had a panel on podcasting on sunday at uh Planet Comic Con, and uh, was would love for me to partake in the uh, panel with him and uh, go up on stage and 
And so that's what I did. It was, and it was fantastic. I had a great time. I got to uh, go up there uh, along with Pop Goes the Culture podcast. There was, of course, Joey. Uh, I got to meet K-Dub and, uh, and Dusty. And then there was a few others from the uh, from the group were out in the crowd, but uh, you know that, this is the main group that was up on stage, along with uh, Tommy from Multiverse Tonight, another one of the fantastic shows from that network. And uh, you know the group of us got to go up on stage, and we were discussing what it's like to podcast, how to start your own, and uh, some of the tips and secrets that we've learned in our. Gosh, I mean it's. Uh, Joey's been doing it for five years or a little over four years or somewhere in there. We've all been doing it near the same time is the thing. And uh, everything that we've learned along the way. And it was a great time. We had a, we had a really good time. And uh, fantastic to, to get to uh, meet some of those guys in person for the first time. I highly recommend that you jump on over and check out each of those shows, which of course are going to be right there in the, sh- in the show notes. So you can find the uh, Pop Goes Culture Network and uh, all the shows associated with it, like Pop Goes Culture Podcast, and of course, Multiverse Tonight. Wonderful shows. Out on the floor, I got to meet with previous guests, author friends of mine now, Brian Peterson. You know, Brian was just with us uh, very recently here on episode 187, and uh, he had been here previously to, previous to that. He was with us on episode 65. Got to meet with him. And, of course, he was pointing out several authors down uh, author row where he was that uh, he had been talking to, people I needed to speak with. and uh, But that was great. Uh, got to meet up with Christopher D. Schmidt of uh, no- episode 98 and <laughs> his incredible convention book, Fifty Shades of Wharf, which he just wrote a sequel to. I got to uh, see that there and uh, check it out so that was fantastic and and yes christopher was once again dressed as wolverine uh, i mean he's got the he's got the beard for it he's got the arms for it and uh it looked fantastic <laughs> he looked fantastic it was great talking to him oh and then another uh, wonderful guest previous guest on the show somebody that uh, surprised me i got to talk to i didn't expect to see her there but jr frontera of episode 68 and that wonderful book uh, actually, the book series, Starship Ass, <laughs> yeah, about the the series about the intergalactical tick that latched itself to a donkey, and now they are. This is the host, um, you know, and they go on space adventures. It's so much fun. I, you know, besides uh, previous guests and friends, as great as that was to get to talk to them and catch up with them a little bit and see how they're doing, uh, I got to meet so many other incredible authors who. I know you're going to be hearing from them real, real soon. Uh, it was just a blast. There were so many of them that really hit it off with and uh, got to talk to a little bit in person. And we're talking shop. We're, you know, we're talking about the process and uh, their books and, and uh, asking me about my books and then the show, of course. And it, it was a blast. We had so much fun. So over the weekend, I also got a chance to meet up with uh, some of the guys from Cobra Kai, Martin Cove and William Zabka. My wife and I got our picture taken with them, and that was a blast getting to meet them as well. Uh, we ran into Kevin Dillon. I actually ran into Kevin Dillon twice. Once while we were waiting in for photos with uh, Martin Cove and William Zadka, he came out and said hi to uh, people waiting in the crowd. And then another time, I was uh, taking my grandson to grab some food, and we ran into him and uh, said hi again. That was really neat. Uh, fun guy, really fun guy. Unfortunately, I did not get to meet 
some of my heroes as a kid. Uh, but I did get to see them. I was watching them interact. Uh, Sam Jones, who played Flash Gordon in the movie back in 1980. Lou Ferrigno, the original Hulk. You know, no CGI there. That's all him. <laughs> uh, and uh, Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley. I uh, got to see all of them, and uh, that was so much fun, watching them interact with fans and uh, taking the photos and such. And uh, gosh, I just, I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time. But, you know, que sera, it was, it was still a good time had by all, and uh, can't wait to uh, go back again next year. But I do need to go ahead and get us over to, uh, need to talk about our sponsors, because we have reconnected with Scrivener early. Uh, we they reactivated that coupon code so make sure you click that link in the show notes to find out more about my favorite writing software or listen to this for more information jason here hey i wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool scrivener now i know you've heard about scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and i from the novice to best-selling novelists the reason we all use it is because of scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application and with tools like automatic backup character maps project goals and let's not forget that amazing corkboard you can see why i use scrivener every day as a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. All right, so there you go. So happy to uh, have reconnected with Scrivener and, uh, and to have this coupon code for you, so you're going to save 20%. Another fantastic opportunity that's come up here recently is we are now an affiliate for Writer's Block Coffee. Uh, you can click that link in the show notes to find out more, but it's it's all writing-themed coffee. They have three fantastic flavors to offer you, which I don't have my list with me. I'm not prepared for this, and they all look amazing. I've got some sample packs on the way for each of those, and uh, hopefully next week I will be reporting back to you on which ones are my favorites. Uh, but click that link in the show notes to find out more about that and to save yourself 10% on your order. Of course, uh, podcast friends, you want to get down in that in that show notes and click the link for Pop Goes the Culture Network, all those fantastic shows over there uh, that I talked about previously. And my other podcast friends, Project Entertainment Network, home to about 30 different shows of a wide, wide variety uh, available to you there. Check out this advertisement for one of those incredible shows. What if a storytelling podcast could be an interactive experience? Hi, I'm Mariah Powell, amateur author and creator of Hobbies Include Writing, and I'm openly inviting your opinions on stories I haven't finished writing yet. Launching with my original audio novel, Blood That Binds, visit hobbiesinclude-writing.weebly.com for more about the show and look for it on a podcasting platform near you. All right, everyone. Well, without further ado, I think it's time to get on over to our wonderful chat with crime thriller and best-selling author, Lisa Reagan. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to another wonderful 
uh, you know what? I'm going to say anyway. Exciting. Yes, my favorite word to describe my guest. Another exciting episode. And uh, yeah, my guest today is definitely exciting with a full backlist of books that uh, I just cannot wait to dive into. My guest today is Lisa Reagan. She is a multiple-time USA Today and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Uh, she writes the Detective Josie Quinn series, as well as several other crime fiction titles. She has a bachelor's degree in English and a master's of education degree from Bloomsburg University. She is a member of the Sisters in Crime, the International Thriller Writers, the Crime Writers Association, and Mystery Writers of America. And she's joining me today to discuss uh, her career and her latest book, Her Deadly Touch, number 12 of the Josie Quinn series. Lisa Reagan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here. <laughs> well, I am thrilled to have you here. And I I just, you know, it's one of the things I love about doing this show is getting to meet authors who, who I may not have, have heard about before. And all of a sudden, I'm open to a whole new world, uh, which includes Josie Quinn. This is, uh, you have quite the series going on here. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, as of uh, recently, I was informed that uh, you have now, uh, the Josie series, has now crossed the 2 million copies sold, and that was prior to the release of book 12. Um, that, yes, that just, is true. Oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> it's so <laughs> exciting. It's so, I, I keep waiting for somebody to email me or call me and say, oh, we, we got these numbers wrong, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm assured that it is true. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that'll that's what's gonna happen to me is I'm gonna tell that and then an hour later like, yeah, sorry, we we added a few zeros. It's 200 worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> well, so now uh, this the series began in 2018, and that astounds me. I mean, you're averaging what three, four books a year in, in Josie Quinn? Yeah, so the first year uh, we did I did four. Um, which was a little bit easier because two of them had been written the year before. Ah. Um, but now I write three books a year, which is, uh, which is a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it, does it seem to help um, going back to a character that, you know, well, a universe that you've created, uh, does that seem to help to just kind of inform your writing so you can get right back into it? It does help. And actually I get, um, I write a lot better and faster and more efficiently having the tight time frame because um, I feel like the longer time frame between writing the books for me um, just gives me more time to procrastinate and um, let my mind wander and, <laughs> and it becomes harder to get back into the books. But when I'm writing them, you know, pretty much one right after another. I never really have time to leave Denton, Pennsylvania. And uh, so I feel very comfortable that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm self-published and I, I, I never set myself exact deadlines and I paid for that a few times by <laughs> having the show <laughs> and telling my listeners like, Oh yeah, the book will be out in a few months, I think. And it would just <laughs> be like, you know, a year later, maybe the book would be coming out or something. And, I, I've learned my lesson that, yeah, having the deadline helps uh, with that process because I can stick to it and, and push for something and have, have that goal to reach. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. It, it, for me, it really helps. I know it's not for everyone, but that just the way that my brain works, uh, it needs that pressure to, to produce. Yeah. So what do you think is a, uh, what, what would be like a secret to writing a series, the pros and cons of it? Well, uh, I, I think the secret is the far, very first thing that comes to mind is you need to keep a series Bible, uh, you know, to keep track of all the characters you've created, all the mm. names you've used, all of the places you've made up. Um, it, for, well, for me, because I've, I, my town in the Josie Quinn series is fictional. So I'm literally making everything up. <laughs> if you are basing your series in a real place that the setting doesn't become as complicated, but um, you should keep a series Bible. And I like to, with along with my editor, we like to plan um, three, four books ahead, just kind of vaguely um, things that we want to happen to the series characters uh, across the books. So we can leave little um, nuggets, say in book nine, that's, that's not going to, you know, pay off until book 11 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I, uh, I, I'm writing my first series right now. And so, <laughs> Having that Bible has definitely been a benefit and something I learned in when I started to write book two. Uh, I finished book one, the rough draft, and then went into book two. And I realized right away, oh, wow, what did I say previously? You got to go back and open it up. And <laughs> Yeah. Uh, gosh. So. It gets to be a lot. And then, you know, by for me, like by book nine, I was thinking as I'm going, I was thinking, wait, is this where this is? Did I did I put this in West End? <laughs> In earlier books, am I getting this right? Did this is this person even still alive? That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would definitely be a little uh, a little strange to have a character come back. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so now, uh, one of the things I, I found fascinating was that uh, when you first began writing, uh, your first book had been rejected by over 150 agents and 24 publishers over a 10 year time frame. How did you, how did you keep going? Uh, that was, yeah, that was, it was 154 agents. Oh. I started querying agents in 2006 and I got an agent in 2010 and I thought, Oh, you know, four years, 154 rejections. I won't have to wait so long for you know a publisher and then we were on submissions for two years um, and just rejection after rejection until a very small press finally finally picked up one of my books um, but it was very demoralizing and um, I was telling this story to someone the other day which was that at some point uh, along the journey I I I can remember my, my daughter was a toddler. We were, uh, it was nighttime. I had just put her down to bed and I was just kind of sitting there thinking about all the rejections and uh, how it just didn't seem like it was ever going to go anywhere. And I had a very uh, serious think about, you know, giving up. And then I thought to myself, you know, when she's older, people in my family are going to say to her, oh, your mom used to write all the time. She always was writing in notebooks. She had a typewriter when she was young. Uh, you know, she just was always writing. And then, you know, inevitably my daughter would come to me and say, hey, what happened with that? 
(laughs) (laughs) And then I would have to have a conversation with her about why I quit. And so from that point on, it wasn't so much about getting the agent were getting published for me, but it became about not having that conversation. I didn't ever want to have that conversation with my daughter mm-hmm. about why I gave up this thing that I had been working on since I was 11 years old. And, and it, it got a little easier after that because it took the focus off of, you know, the very concrete goal of getting this agent or getting a publisher and just, you know, left me with this, this goal of, of continuing, continuing to write because that's what I love. Yeah. And, and that sounds like, I mean, you had that passion and you, yes. you clung to it. And yeah, of course, publishing is, is the dream. That's what we all wanted. But it was nice that you were able to look within and find that drive that like, but I'm still doing this for myself too. And hopefully yes. this works out. And I'm so glad that it did. Oh, me too. <laughs> it's a definite positive to 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 uh, see it through, um, you know, to where to where things have ended up now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I had, would have the same drive that you did. I, I finally for me, it was it was finding out that I was going to be a grandfather that drove me back into writing because I'd wanted to be a writer for my whole life. But I always had work and other responsibilities and. I just kind of kept putting it off and I would dabble once in a while. Uh, But once I found out like, yeah, you're going to be a grandpa. Oh, hey, you're going to be grandpa by two of your kids around the same time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And that drove me to get back into it. Like, okay, yeah, I've got to do this because similarly, it's like, yeah, uh, I I don't want people. I'm always very, very encouraging and saying, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Right. And what does that say about myself if I don't live it myself? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. So, yeah. So that's why I went ahead and did it. And even though I chose to go the indie publishing uh, route with it, I'm having such a good time. It's such a wonderful career and a, a lifestyle to, uh, to be able to write these books that, that people enjoy. Oh, absolutely. And to me, that is, that is the point, no matter how your work gets into the hands of readers, that it's, you know, there, the, I love that there's an option now to bypass you know, the, 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 the so-called gatekeepers, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and, and put your stories directly into the hands of readers. I just think it's fabulous. And that I know I'm finding so many more authors and books that I may not have had the opportunity to read 20 years ago. So I think it's oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason I went the indie route was because my first book was a very, it was going to be a very regional urban legend kind of thing. I didn't know how many people might even be interested in reading that aside from people in my area. Right. Uh, What about you? What was that first book? My first book uh, was called uh, Finding Claire Fletcher. And it grew out of my obsession with the Jacob Wetterling uh, abduction which happened in Minnesota in the, in 19, I believe 1989, um, which was nowhere near me. I've, I've always lived in Pennsylvania, born in Philadelphia, spent a lot of time in living in central Pennsylvania. Now I'm back in the Philadelphia area, but I was the same age as Jacob Wetterling when he was abducted and um, very similar to, to his situation. I just always would be out riding my bike around mm. um, everywhere in my neighborhood. And, and just like he, you know, the night that he was abducted, he was riding his bike to the, 
you know, the mini mart to, to rent a movie. So I, as a child, that case had a huge impact on me. I remember the news coverage and just feeling terrified, like, oh, that could be me or any one of my friends. Mm-hmm. And th- that obsession stayed with me well into adulthood. And I, I always had this um, kind of strange daydream that was like, what if you ran into Jacob Wetterling uh, or any uh, person who had been abducted as a child and they were now an adult and you ran into them and had some kind of interaction with them and didn't even realize that they were this abducted person. And so that's where the premise from for finding Claire Fletcher came from is that uh, this guy meets a woman in a bar, they have this, um, you know, memorable kind of interaction. And then he later finds out that, that she's been missing for 10 years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it, that also additionally, that kicked off uh, your first series then, the Detective Parks Mysteries. Yes. And there's only two books in that. Um, not that I don't have more ideas for it, but just that um, Josie came along and and <laughs> I'm contracted to write so many uh, for her. I'm just kind of, I don't really have time right now to return to um, Connor and Claire, although I would love to. I hope yeah. to someday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. So whenever you are developing uh, these characters, um, like, like Josie Quinn or, um, or Detective Parks, uh, what, what are you looking for when developing, uh, this protagonist? Well, one of the number one things for me is that, that they should always have this strong sense of justice that, um, almost makes it impossible for them to, to cut corners or to do something that they know is wrong. Um, because, you know, and I feel like in in my own life, I've learned the kind of hard lesson that sometimes doing the right thing is also doing the hardest thing. And so I I like those characters to start off with, with that as a base, um, that they'll always feel a very strong compulsion to do the right thing, even if it goes against everyone around them. And then I like to give them some flaws and some emotional baggage because um, I just, I I know it's very tropey, you know, the detective with the alcohol problem or the terrible childhood, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really believe that, you know, readers don't want to read about someone who is perfectly well-adjusted and has never faced any adversity in their whole entire lives. I just don't Mm. think that's realistic as a, as a character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be a little uh, kitschy if, if their problem was that they couldn't stop eating M and M's or something. <laughs> yeah. We could all we could all relate, but in a good way to that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, you put something more serious, a, a drug or alcohol problem, into it, then it's you you, you have a dark place to go. And right. I, yeah, that I think I find that that's good. Anyway, I mean, at least for the author that's good because it's it gives you more to uh oh gosh more places to go and yeah. dive into their psyche <clears throat> yeah for sure and as a reader we have a lot to discover fr- from that uh journey yeah that's the hope <laughs> <laughs> so now with with all these thrillers that you've got and uh the, you know, the constant mysteries how uh how difficult is it coming up with a new mystery each time it's not as difficult as I thought. Um, 
because I've always got ideas. Uh, I have a long list of ideas. I, I think my biggest problem is just that some of my ideas for mysteries or stories I'd like to tell that revolve around a mystery don't fit neatly into the series. So mm. that's the only time I really run into trouble is when I have an idea I'm really excited about, but I'm like, this wouldn't work in the universe of Josie Quinn uh, for whatever reason. Um, but I, if I have any times where, I, you know, it's not really coming to me, I'm not getting any new ideas, I will um, often, you know, go back and forth with my editor over email um, and just talk about like, hey, what if this happened in Denton? Or, or hey, what about this character? We don't know what their past is. Um, what if we explore that? And we just kind of go back and forth until, until something starts to happen. That's fascinating, actually. So it, your editor is kind of serving almost as if a uh, like like part of a writing group for you and helping yeah, you she's develop it. Great to bounce ideas um, off of, and um, what I love is that I'll I'll come at her with this a premise I think is really exciting, and then she'll say, "Oh yeah, I love that." And and what if we also did this? And I'll and I'll be like, "Oh my goodness, that's <laughs> that's an even better idea." <laughs> yeah, let's add that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. So now what about, uh, I, I see you've got uh, some short stories and or a collection of short stories. You've got a standalone as well, Kill For You. How, uh, when did these come out and, and what were they like for you? Well, Kill For You was my second book mm. and it was originally called Aberration, but I was finding that no one could remember that title or spell it. And, um, people uh, kept saying to me, oh, what's that, that other book you wrote? It's um, Apparition or Admiration. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, okay, this is not, you know, this is a little too confusing. Um, so uh, I actually, my, that had been published by a small publisher and then I got the rights back and I published it myself and uh, retitled it Kill For You, uh, which I find readers like a lot better. And you know, everybody seems to be able to remember that. Um, and that was just a standalone about a, an FBI profiler um, because I had been obsessed with, you know, profilers. It's probably as long as um, America has been obsessed with profilers. <laughs> um, so that was just like a fun uh, book I, I wrote about an FBI profiler hunting, you know, what else, a serial killer. And then the short stories have just been kind of things that between books uh, I get asked to do or invited to do. And then they come out, you know, I, I'm not good at short stories and I find them to be very hard, but if they turn out um, to where I'm happy with them, then I will put them out there for readers. Okay. So the, uh, the short stories then, were they just kind of an exploration for you or, or something just, uh, just trying something out? Uh, just trying something out. And a couple times um, I, I was part of a compilation with a number of other thriller authors uh, oh. where we all wrote um, a, a short story and then we published it together. And then, but the deal was that it would only be out for say a year and then we would get our stories back. Oh. And I had gotten so many, um, so much positive feedback from readers who had bought the collection and like the story that I once I got it back I just put it out you know on Kindle myself 
Um, and then other times I've been, I had been asked to contribute to anthologies, but that never, um, you know, made it. <laughs> so I just, well, I was like, well, I have this story. I should do something with it. <laughs> That's great. So you've got the 12th book in uh, Josie Quinn. It just came out, which, oh my gosh, that's, it still just blows my mind. 12 books this quick. Uh, and, and you're planning so many books ahead. Do you see an end in sight for Josie? Well, my dream is that there's never an end. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm contracted for 20 books total. And wow. um, the conversations that I've had with my publisher is just basically, um, they'll all be Josie Quinn books unless uh, the interest goes away. If readers get tired of reading about Josie and, and the sales aren't there, then I then I'll have the opportunity to switch to something else mm -hmm. uh, or develop something else. But we're on book 12 and the readers are even more passionate at book 12 than they were at book one. So it's just astounding to me. Um, I, I don't, I, I hope that it never slows down. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so too. I mean, that that's an incredible uh, run you've got going. And uh, it certainly seems like yeah, once you cross a certain threshold of, I, th I think I had heard it was like, once you cross book five or six, then your audience seems to start finding you. And, and uh, I mean, gosh, you've already doubled that. So <laughs> just, you should just yeah. keep getting bigger. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So it, it sounds like then everything right now then for you is all Josie Quinn, or, or do you have anything on this side that you're kind of squeezing in once in a while? I don't. I have other ideas that I've tooled around with, and it, but it's kind of like, oh, this would be fun to write when I have time, um, which is never. So, um, you know, one day maybe I'll, I'll work on them if, if life slows down. But um, I'm very happy writing Josie stories. I, I don't feel any need or, or yearning to, to do anything else. I'm, I, you know, I love the characters. I love the universe. Uh, I love the the reader enthusiasm. So um, I'm just going to stick with Josie as long as I can. Oh, that's fantastic. And that, and I think that's what matters is it, it, you've got your soul is in, in it and uh, your heart's in it. And I think it, it's got to be coming across for everybody to be devouring the books as much as they are. And, and so long as that's happening and your heart's in it, then I mean, yeah, I'd say run with it and just enjoy the ride. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. <laughs> So tell us uh, what you can about Her Deadly Touch, book 12 of the series, I, I guess, without spoilers. I don't know. Is there, is there a spoiler to any of this? Uh, I, I think I can do it without spoilers. <laughs> um, it gets harder each book, though, because things happen to the, to the series regular characters that, uh -huh. um, you know, can be spoiler-like. But I'll, <laughs> I'll say that in, in book 11, Josie loses someone very close to her. And so at, at the beginning of book 12, Josie's in therapy uh, and she's trying to grapple with her grief. And um, she's been out of work for a few months. Um, it was a combination of uh, her being insubordinate on her last case and you know her having lost this person. So her chief has given her a long time out of work to, to try and deal with the loss. So she, uh, the book starts out with her at her therapist 
you know, she's supposed to go back to work the next day. She, she's very, she's very anxious. And so she goes to the cemetery to, to visit a loved one. And she hears the screaming and she follows the sounds of the screams. And there's a woman uh, standing there in front of a headstone. And next to the headstone is another woman who is dead. And she has been staged kneeling with her head um, facing, her face facing upward toward the sky and wax sealing her lips. Oh. And so that kicks off the, the case. And then what Josie discovers is that the dead woman is the parent of a child who died in a school bus crash two years earlier. And then what begins to happen is one by one, the parents of these children start to be picked off. And Josie realizes that in order to stop this killer, she has to go back and um, kind of excavate the things that happened in the weeks and the days leading up to that bus crash. Oh my goodness. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Well, that's, I don't know what to say other than, man, I can't wait to hear about this. As much as I love hearing about her deadly touch and hearing where she is now, what, how did the series begin with uh, Vanishing Girls, the book one? Uh, what can you tell us about setting the stage here? Uh, so, yes, you're right. Vanishing Girls is the first book in the series um, where everything started. And um, in that book, we first meet Josie. She's on suspension for um, the alleged use of excessive force. And a teenage girl in her town uh, of Denton goes missing. And she can't um, seem to keep herself from away from the case. Wonderful. Uh, Lisa, where can people find and follow you? Uh, the probably the easiest place would be just to go to my website because all of my um, social media links and purchase links will be there. And it's www.lisareagan.com. It's L-I-S-A-R-E-G-A-N.com. And of course, everyone listening, we're going to have links to that in the show notes where you can find and follow her and sign up for her newsletter that's on there as well. And uh, yeah, check out these books. This is fantastic i love the color the, the covers they're all tied in together so you know it's part of a series and uh, just so much good stuff here everyone you gotta check this out lisa thank you so much for joining me this has been a real delight getting to talk to you and uh, getting to know you a little bit oh i'm so happy to be here it's wonderful <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen time for me to step aside and uh, hand the floor over to my guest lisa reagan with vanishing girls thank you Chapter one, the stop and go gas station had recently installed flat screen televisions at the gas pumps because people could not possibly take their eyes off a screen long enough to pump gas. Even though it annoyed her, Detective Josie Quinn found herself glued to the screen when the breaking news flashed across it. They'd finally found Isabel Coleman's cell phone in the woods near her home. A few miles away, outside the Coleman's two-story white colonial, Reporter Trinity Payne, dressed in a puffy blue jacket and yellow scarf, the wind blowing her black hair every which way, struggled through her report while escaped strands snaked all over her face. Five days ago, Marla Coleman returned home from work to an empty house. Believing that her 17-year-old daughter, Isabel, had gone out with friends, she thought nothing of it until later that night when Isabel failed to return home. Police sources tell us that, at the time, they had no reason to believe Isabel's disappearance was suspicious. 
Friends and family of Ms. Coleman describe her as a busy young woman with varied interests, likely to have left town on a spontaneous trip. But days later, with calls to her cell phone still going straight to voicemail and her car still parked in the Coleman's driveway, police are now on high alert as the residents here in Denton rally together to form search teams. The camera panned out to show the Coleman's long circular driveway with three vehicles parked in it. Trinity continued, for the last few days, volunteers have combed the area around the Coleman's home where Isabel was last seen. The camera moved further out, swinging from side to side and focusing in on the heavily wooded areas surrounding the Coleman home. Josie knew the house. It was one of the larger homes on the outskirts of Denton, sitting alone along a rural road, its nearest neighbor almost two miles away. She'd once hit a deer with her police cruiser not far from there. The camera returned to Trinity. Yesterday, during one of the searches, a cell phone was discovered in one of these wooded areas, which is believed to have belonged to the missing girl. The screen was shattered and police tell us that the battery had been removed. Coleman's parents say that she would never willingly part with her phone. It is now widely believed that Ms. Coleman is the victim of an abduction. She went on to answer some canned questions from the WYEP anchors and give out the number of the Denton Police Department helpline with a request for information. The knots in Josie's shoulders that had started forming three weeks earlier tightened. She swiveled her neck and shrugged her shoulders, trying to loosen them. Listening to the latest developments and knowing she could do nothing to help made her want to smash the TV's plasma screen into a million pieces with the gas pump in her hand. Isabel had been missing for five days. Why had it taken so long to find evidence that she had been abducted? Why had they waited two days to form search parties around the house? Why had they turned Josie away when she'd offered to join the search? Surely being on paid leave for an alleged use of excessive force didn't render her searching skills useless. It didn't matter that she was showing up as a private citizen. Her colleagues, most of whom she outranked, had sent her home. Chief's orders. She fumed. Every available resource would be devoted to locating the girl. Every resource. Josie knew her colleagues were probably sleeping on cots in the break room at the station, working around the clock, just like they'd done during the floods of 2011, when the entire city was under seven feet of water, and the only way to get around was by boat. She knew they would have already called in volunteer firefighters, emergency medical services, and every able-bodied person in the city willing to search and run down leads. So why hadn't the chief called her back to work yet? Denton was roughly 25 square miles, many of those spanning the untamed mountains of central Pennsylvania with their one-lane winding roads, dense woods, and rural residences spread out carelessly like thrown confetti. The population was edging over 30,000, just enough to give them about a half dozen murders a year, most of those domestic disputes, and enough rapes, robberies, and drunken bar brawls to keep the police department staff of 53 moderately busy. Competent as they were, they simply weren't equipped to handle an abduction case, especially not the kind where the kidnapped girl was blonde, vivacious, popular, and college-bound. Every photo of Isabel Coleman that Josie had seen, and the girl's Facebook page boasted thousands of them, all of them set the public, looked like a glamour shot. Even in the photos where she and her friends made funny faces, poking out newly pierced tongues, Isabel's small pink barbell read princess, where it might have well-read perfect. The double doors to the stop and go whooshed open and two 20-somethings made their way toward the gas pumps. Across from Josie sat their tiny yellow Subaru. The woman got in as the man pumped gas. Josie felt their eyes on her, but refused to give them the satisfaction of looking back. Not that they'd have the balls to ask her any questions. Most people didn't. They just liked to stare. At least her indiscretion wasn't on the news anymore. 
In a small city where the standard newsworthy items were car accidents, local charity activities, and who got the biggest buck during hunting season, nobody cared anymore about the crazy lady cop with a temper. She had hoped that the Coleman case would give her a chance to get off the chief's shit list, that he would make an exception in this case and just let her come back for a week or two until they had the investigation well in hand, until they found the girl, but he didn't call. She kept checking her phone to make sure it was working, that the battery hadn't mysteriously drained, that she hadn't accidentally muted it. She hadn't. The phone was fine. It was her chief who was being a hard ass. Deciding she wasn't ready to go home just yet, Josie walked back inside the stop and go to get a coffee. She killed a good 10 minutes fixing it slowly, lots of half and half and two sugars, and paying for it. The owner, Dan, a former biker in his late 50s who had never given up leather vests, was an old acquaintance. He made enough small talk with her to let her know he was on her side without actually asking about the case pending against her. He knew her well enough by now not to ask probing questions. But then there was nothing left to do but go home. She noticed a small group of customers gathered around another television that hung above the lottery kiosk near the front of the store. She wandered over to them, sipping her coffee and watching as the broadcast she'd seen at the gas pump continued. The words student and faculty react to Coleman abduction flashed across the bottom of the screen, while a montage they'd been looping since last night played. The first time Josie saw it, WYEP had used the word disappearance instead of abduction. She was like a really nice person. I hope they find her. I mean, this is scary to think this could happen in Denton. It's just hard to believe, you know, she just vanished. It's a shame. She was really nice. We were supposed to go to the mall this weekend. I just, I can't believe it. I just saw her yesterday. She was my best friend. Isabel is one of the brightest students in my class. All of us are extremely concerned. A spasm rippled across Josie's shoulder blades. Only Isabel's history teacher spoke as though she were still alive. Everyone else had used the past tense. They had already given up on her being found safe, but why wouldn't they? People didn't vanish into thin air, and beautiful teenage girls who were abducted very rarely returned alive and unharmed. Josie knew that with every second that passed, the odds of Isabel being found alive grew slimmer and slimmer. A bead of sweat formed at the nape of her neck and rolled down her spine as she stepped outside, the paper coffee cup burning the skin of her palm as she stared at her escape for a moment. She really should go home. The owner would need that pump for new customers. But the thought of spending the whole day alone in her house was simply too much to bear. Of course, she could always drive around, maybe try to find the crime scene. It would likely be marked and cordoned off now that it had been located, and see if she saw anything that the others had missed. Josie pulled out her cell phone and punched in a number she had dialed four to six times a day for the last six months. He let most of her calls go right to voicemail, but occasionally he would answer. And today he picked up on the third ring. Joe, Sergeant Ray Quinn said, sounding out of breath. When did you guys find the crime scene? She asked without preamble. He wasn't too breathless to give her one of his trademark heavy sighs, the kind he always gave her when he thought she was being a pain in the ass. Jesus Christ, he said. You're out on leave. Stop calling me. We've got this under control. Do you? You think we don't? Why hasn't the chief called in help? He's saying Coleman was abducted. Has he asked for support from the state police or the FBI? We don't have the resources for this. You don't know anything about this case, Joe. I know enough. If this really is an abduction, you need to call in backup like yesterday. You know the kids who aren't found in the first 48 hours. Stop. I'm serious, Ray. This is serious shit. This girl could be anywhere by now. Have you shaken down the registered sex offenders yet? Please tell me you've got someone out there doing that right now. 
I mean, this isn't rocket science. Pretty blonde teenager is abducted. Hiller would be good. You should get him to do it. And I'd have LeMay go with him. Call over to Bowersville and see if they can get a couple of people from their department to hit the registry there. That's not far from here. Tell me you've done this already. She could feel his annoyance over the line, but she was used to it. She tried to remember a time when they'd been loving toward one another. Sweet, caring, patient. She had to go all the way back to high school for that memory. They had liked one another once, hadn't they? Ray sighed. Here we go again. You think you know everything. You think you're the only one on the force who can do the job. You know what, Joe? You're not. You know nothing. Nothing. So shut up and stop fucking calling me. Take up knitting or whatever the fuck women do when they don't work. I'm hanging up now. She was stung by the force of his words. He used the word nothing like a knife, stabbing her fast and quick, a prison shanking. He was always abrasive. She could be too, but never cruel. Recovering quickly, she blurted, sign the divorce papers, Ray, and I'll stop calling. Silence. Now it was her turn to stab back. I'm marrying Luke. He proposed yesterday in bed. He didn't respond, but she could hear him breathing. They'd been separated for months, but their relationship had been broken for a long time. She knew he hated Luke, hated the thought of another man with his wife, even if she was soon to be his ex-wife. She was listening so intently to the sound of his breathing, waiting to see what he would say, what tack he was going to take on hearing this news, that it took a moment for her to register the sharp report of gunshots in the distance. It wasn't that unusual in Denton. During hunting season, in the wooded outskirts of the city, shots went off all day long like fireworks. But it wasn't hunting season or the 4th of July. It was March, and there were no good reasons for anyone to be firing off that many rounds. Phone still in hand, Josie tossed her coffee cup into a nearby trash can and took a few steps out into the parking lot. The shots were getting closer, shattering the cool stillness of the morning. People at the gas pumps froze in place, all heads craned, searching for the source. Josie met the wide-eyed stares of a few of the patrons, but all they could do was exchange the same puzzled look. Something was coming, but they didn't know what or from where. Instinctively, her free hand reached to her waist for her service weapon, but it wasn't there. Fear was a fist in her chest, squeezing her heart into her throat. Ray spoke into her silence. Joe? From around the corner, a black, bullet-riddled Escalade barreled toward the stop-and-go, jumped the curb, and sailed directly toward Josie. Her feet were like cement blocks. Move, she told herself. Move. As the Escalade hurtled past her, the driver's side mirror caught the corner of her jacket, spinning her around and sending her flying through the air. She hit the asphalt hard, landing on her left side, her body rolling away from the vehicle until her stomach hit one of the metal pillars that blocked the gas pumps. The Escalade smashed into the front of the stop-and-go, metal screeching and windows blowing out in a cacophonous boom. Even after the SUV lodged in the wall, the engine continued to rev and squeal. Plumes of dust from the crumbled cinder block rose around the vehicle. People fled from the building. Josie's lungs screamed for air that wouldn't come. Wow. All right. Well, that was Lisa Reagan reading a sample chapter from book one of the Detective Josie Quinn series, Vanishing Girls. As we said before, book 12 just came out. So what are you waiting for? Click that link in the show notes for more about Lisa and pick up all 12 books right now. Grab them all. You're going to want them all. And uh, you're going to want to see what's going to happen next to Josie Quinn. 
Don't forget to also hit that link in the show notes for all of our podcast friends and sponsors alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when I am back with Eva Shaw and her historical mystery, The Seer. That's coming up next week. So until then, take care. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.